Welcome to the North Shore Fellowship Podcast, a place to explore the intersection of God's story with our lives. Welcome back. This is Chris. I'm sitting here today with Jason and Heather as usual, and we also have Crystal Holland with us today. I'm glad to have you here as we discuss Ephesians and look at the temple imagery therein. Uh, Jason, I'll start with you. Last week, we finished with the idea that we are knit together for God's purposes. I, I believe the Bible gives us several images for that, temple being one of them. What, what are those images that the Bible gives us? Well, the ones that come to my mind are temple and body and then agricultural images like a vine. That these things are all connected together for a purpose and um, Jesus is at the center of those usually in some fashion or another. Um, he's the the vine, we're the branches off of the vine bearing fruit um, because he's at work in us and we share in his life. Uh, so uh, the one that Paul picks up on here in Ephesians, we'll talk about body in a bit, but um, uh, the one that we really want to talk about today is temple, really important theme for Paul. You say it's an important theme. As I was looking through Ephesians, the word temple only shows up one time. So does it really rise to the level of a theme in the in the book of Ephesians? So we got to tease out uh, some of the imagery that uh, doesn't use the word. Um, so, for example, uh, the word discipleship doesn't appear in Ephesians either. Disciple doesn't appear, but clearly he's talking about being a disciple when he's talking about uh, what to believe and what to do in God's world. So uh, you don't have to have the word uh, present for the concept to be uh, in play. Crystal, this is your world podcast debut. This is very exciting and um, probably the first of many to come. Tell everybody what you do around here. I am the assistant youth director here at North Shore. So it is my job uh, and my joy to get to hang out with our middle school and high school students. So if you know or love someone who is the age 11 to 18, we'd love to have them join us for middle school and high school youth group. And what do you do if people are reluctant, if kids don't really want to plug in? Like, what do you, how do you connect with them? Well, to connect with students that are reluctant, we try to meet them where they are. Um, Rob and I will go to lunches at various schools around town. We like to meet their friends. We like to show up unexpectedly at soccer games, volleyball games, basketball games. Sometimes we get a lot of cringy faces from kids, but also a lot of excitement of, you showed up, you're here. Um, we pray for students, even students that feel distant and are uninterested. They are being prayed for. Um, and sometimes it's as little as shooting a text out to just say, hey, I'm thinking about you. We miss you. We're praying for you. Uh, let us know how we can care for you. And of course, we have the big fanfare on Wednesdays and Sundays and retreats and parties and shenanigans of all sorts. I love how before we've even started talking about temple, you've just given us an illustration of how the body works together as God's temple and that the kids get to experience that. Sometimes they probably don't realize it, but you've also been able to teach on it uh, this past spring, right? You all went through Ephesians, and I know that you've had a passion for teaching about the temple, and you love to help them understand that they are united in the as the body of Christ and that that is his temple, so... It's exciting to get to hear all that. Yes. I tell the kids often that my two favorite things to talk about is manna 
and how manna, this theme of God's provision, appears over and over again. Got it tattooed on my body. I love manna so much. Had to get Roger Lambert to give me a brief Hebrew lesson um, and jumped in with that tattoo for my 30th birthday. And also the temple um, and what the temple looks like in the various stages of scripture from the bush with Moses to tabernacle language to the actual temple, how the temple has to be rebuilt, the promised temple that is better to come in Jesus. And then ultimately what we see in Ephesians is that you and I, the saints, friends of Jesus are the new temple, the new dwelling place of the spirit, um, who's given to us and that it just, I get really excited and kind of squirrely about it. Even one thing I'm particularly grateful for is the way you all pull so many volunteers in to participate in the lives of these kids. Um, and so I, that just means the world to me that there's other people across generational lines, even kind of, uh, connecting with uh, with our kids and showing us a little picture of what it's like to be a temple kind of built together. Yes, it is often very funny to me that some of the kids don't realize that this is actually Rob and I's job, that we are on staff paid, whereas other people show up of their own accord, of their own free will, um, and to watch their minds kind of process, wow, these grown-ups who are my friends are choose actively choosing to be here with me in this space. And that, I mean, that changes how a relationship works when it's not a, an obligation, but a free will choice. It's remarkable. Our volunteers are amazing. I could brag on them for hours and often do. So one, one label that Paul throws on, on the church that we don't often think about or often use, um, is this, this label saints that he's writing to a group of people that he calls saints, holy ones. And he says that their calling in verse, uh, chapter one, verse four is to be holy and blameless before him in love. We were, we were chosen in love, uh, for this, uh, b- before the foundation of the world. So being holy and blameless before him, even that little image uh, right out of the bat and being holy ones, being saints, even that sort of speaks to something temple-ish, right? And who we are, that we are before him in his presence and we're holy and blameless. And I think we'll, we'll see later maybe a lot more about how Paul actually gets there, um, but um most Christians are very familiar with uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and being washed in his blood, um, the implications of that um, being so profound for our forgiveness and our right standing with him. Um, but then Paul putting it in this temple context, I think, is really interesting. He does some interesting stuff with this. Um, one thing, one place where we see this is in chapter two. Uh, he talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile um, being broken down um, by the body of Jesus. Uh, and um, this is something in the first century that was really profound. There was a distinction between Jews and Gentiles on the streets and certainly in religious context and in the temple precincts. We have archaeological evidence of uh, the fact that the Gentiles were not allowed in the temple precincts. The Romans had figured out a long time ago, these people are going to lose their minds if Gentiles are going into their temples. We're just not going to let that happen. Um, And here Paul is saying, actually, that 
that's all done now. And we are together before him in his presence. So there's got to be a new temple, a, a spiritual temple, not built with human hands, as Paul will say. Well, and the beauty of this new temple that is being erected, that no longer we have aliens and foreigners, but we're all brought near. We're all citizens in this family. We're heirs with Christ. Is that the one with whom we share our heirship with, if you will, our sonship, our daughtership, Christ Jesus? Paul tells us that he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. So this new temple being erected is not just because we now have unity with Christ and we share in his inheritance and his righteousness, but it's also being built on him and the structure and how that's actually really good news for us as new creation, as the new temple, as the dwelling place of God. Yeah. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple um, in the Lord. And we're building on him. He's the chief cornerstone. We're building on the apostles and the prophets, almost maybe a picture of the Old Testament and the New Testament there and how important that is as a foundation for whatever we do and um, putting the church together. Um, and then the household language, members of the household of God um, being built together into a dwelling place for God uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 22. So explain to me then, as we're talking about temple and we recognize, it, or and we were talking uh, in our sermon series about Solomon's temple and it was finished and God's glory came, but this is saying that the temple isn't finished yet. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the right way to look at it. Um, so Paul describes the basic uh, description in uh, verse 20 and 21, and then he says, you also were being built together uh, for, for this dwelling place. And I think that would include us today. That project isn't over with. Um, it's that same worldwide project we see started in Genesis where Adam and Eve have these this priestly role uh, before the presence of the Lord, and that's supposed to be spread all through God's creation. So in chapter 1, when Paul was trying to explain that we have a power at work in us, resurrection, creation, power at work in us, we're in him, uh, we mentioned the fact that Paul then prays for them to accept and believe this power at work in them. Not that the power would be at work in them, but that they could somehow know it, sense it, believe it. And it seems that Paul does the same thing here in chapter 3. Yeah, he's also praying they would be uh, strengthened to this end as well. But yeah, I think he's he, he he knows how hard it is to believe these things. And that as you look at the impressive temple of Artemis in Ephesus, and then you turn to your little small group that meets in your your patio, uh, and oh, like oh no, this is the real temple. This is the, the the real temple where the real God of the universe dwells. That can be a little hard to process. Um, so he's praying that they would really uh, believe that this is true. Um, and so he uses language like glory, um, the spirit dwelling uh, in, our, in your hearts through faith. Um, and that seems to be connected to what was going on with the spirit and with glory in the Old Testament in the temple. This would have been the locus for that. Paul's now transferring that, or he sees that transferred, I should say, from that piece of architecture to the people of God. Remember, we talked about, uh, as you mentioned, the, the temple uh, in, in Solomon's time. We talked about how Solomon had to pray, look, I, I know heaven and the highest heavens and the whole earth can't contain you. 
that you've just been pleased to kind of dwell here. And that's, that's what we have going on. Um, it's not that there's something magic about us. It's just that God has been pleased to put his name on a particular place in the new Testament, just as he did in the old Testament. And now it's on us. Uh, so then he, um, he prays that we'll have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And I, I think that language goes back to uh, the temple as well, because this, the temple is the only thing where you're really concerned with the dimensions and stuff like this in the Bible. You have that described in a couple of different locations, tabernacle, temple, Ezekiel's version of the new temple, which is, we might call it trans-architectural. It's absurd dimensions, and clearly God's spirit is expanding things. And I think that's what's happening here. Paul Paul wants you to see yourself as the dwelling place of God um, with these incredible dimensions that extend beyond your race, beyond your little piece of geography. Um, and thus, it becomes much more impressive than the Temple of Artemis, which for all of its glory and beauty is just one little structure. I think that in one way that I am so humbled and grateful for my job in working with students is that I get to see the beauty of God dwelling in these young people. I am often struck on how they are thoughtful, how they care for one another, how they're intentional in the way they ask questions. And that idea of the grandeur of Solomon's temple, the intentionality, the precision of the command to erect this temple that Solomon took is now bestowed on us as believers, as the body. And we get to see that and experience it when we do life on life together, um, life on life ministry, but also just life on life relationship, um, that Christ would dwell in our hearts and he roots us and he grounds us for the saints, for his beloved. It's covenantal language. It's this treasured possession ideal. And that's in you and I. Um, and I feel like I get a really gift, immense privilege to see it on day-to-day basis in teenagers. And I love that you say that because I also am thinking as he was talking about this grand temple with Artemis and, and just thinking of these grand temples that we have even today throughout Europe or, or wherever. And I was thinking... And yet here we are. And then it brought my mind back to you all having like 50 middle schoolers on a Wednesday. And it's awesome that you can say and you, that you can see Christ dwelling in them. And yet there's also times when it's like, oh my goodness, this is chaos or this is so hard. Or you have a night where you're ready to pull your hair out. And so there's like both things going on. And you can see why Paul is praying. Yes. Teenage youth ministry is not for the faint of heart, but oh, the riches that we get to see as we uh, enter into the trenches with their chaos. And I'll just jump in here and say, I I think humans are not for the faint of heart. Um, Because as you were talking, Crystal, what I think of is that I I get that privilege mostly with adults. I do see it with kids. You know, I'll get a note from a kid or something and see something beautiful. But I, I get to see that day and day out too, that God is working in people, uh, and in profound ways. And, um, so there's, there's a lot of beauty in that. 
Um, and it's, it's deeply encouraging, uh, to know that, that God is at work. Um, I think every parent has probably had this experience where, uh, somebody reports back to them, whether it's a youth leader, teacher, coach, scout troop leader, uh, who comments on something that they've observed in their child and like, Oh, there's, there's evidence that, that, that sunk in that really, Oh, they, they got it, you know? And, um, there's something very beautiful that transpires there. And in the same way, we see that in the church more broadly, like Jesus is at work. His spirit is building his temple and, um, taking these imperfect blocks and, uh, and fitting them together for his purposes. Paul says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's knowing his love and what he's done for us that helps us get through when it isn't easy or when we can't see uh, or we lose sight that we are the temple. And that, that word fullness, uh, filled with all the fullness of God, again, that's that's temple language, right? God taking up residence in the tabernacle, putting his fullness there. Same thing in the temple and then with us today. So if if we're the temple uh, and that's going to carry uh, implications for how we live, I think we've already hinted at this in terms of what we've seen from teenagers and adults. Uh, so it's pretty natural that Paul flows from this temple discussion and takes it into what we might call Amen. ethics uh, next. Um, but there's a real natural connection between those, because if we are the temple, then we're supposed to be home, holy and blameless. He wants to give us instruction on on how to do that. Well, and I think it's important to also see as three goes into verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And just the as we ask the question, how then do we live as we lead into these thoughts of ethical and perhaps even some moral thought is that Christ is at work. His power, his resurrection power is at work in us, his dwelling place, his beloved people. And he's going to do more than we can even know to ask. And that is the beauty of how he gives himself to us. I love riffing on verse 20 when I pray, you know, cause I always, you know, feel like there's things that you haven't covered in prayer and you just kind of have to rely on the Lord, the spirit who intercedes for us. And when we don't even know what to pray, um, that, that confidence that he can do more uh, than we ask or imagine, we can kind of throw it uh, in his court as we pray and ask for the things that we do remember and are familiar with, um, always kind of giving a little hat tip to his infinite uh, resources and infinite knowledge. I love it. And he reminds us earlier in chapter three that we have a boldness and we have access and we can have confidence in this because of our faith in him. We don't have to wait for a scepter to be extended. There's not a fear in coming to the throne room. We have access to him. Thank you, Crystal, Jason, and Heather. It's a great place for us to end, that we have incredible access to the throne room. And I pray that all of us this week would pray to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. 